Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Amazon.com, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase, they say that they're going to collaborate on a way to offer health care services to their U.S. employees. Here to tell us more is Max Neeson, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. He covers all things related to health care. Max, thanks very much for coming in. We spoke earlier in the morning. What have you learned by investigating whatever details they have released about this collaboration? So the the thing about it is that there are so few details that you can sort of read the release and, and the potential for the future of this endeavor really any way you want. Um, if you're an optimist or you're just intrigued by the idea, you can see it as the potential for these companies to kind of pioneer a new model of employer health care um, where they eventually are running their health coverage on their own and can potentially export that model to other companies. If you're a skeptic, on the other hand, um, you see this as a, a kind of just a, a PR play um, given added luster by the names involved. And, you know, you point out the fact that technology is more often referred to as a healthcare savior than um, actually, you know, being able to deliver it. And the fact that this isn't the first time that a consortium of companies has gotten together to try to bring down healthcare costs. Well, okay, let, let me just play devil's advocate here because none of these companies are healthcare companies. None of them have ever run healthcare companies. What makes them think that they can do it better than the companies and the organizations that have devoted their entire lives to this? It's not as if anyone goes out to create a bad or imperfect healthcare system. So I think they, they definitely acknowledge this in their press release that, you know, we, we don't know much about this. Uh, but they also point to the fact that perhaps it needs kind of a an untested skeptic, one that's kind of less involved in sort of the labyrinthine weirdness of, of the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, but that's going to be the really difficult thing to for them. I think what they point to as their potential advantage is the fact that they're looking to take kind of the profit motivation um, out of some particular parts of the healthcare system. You know, with insurers and, and PBMs, really any middleman in the healthcare system, you've got this sort of competing dual mandate where your your job is to bring down, you know, deliver healthcare as inexpensively and efficiently as possible, but you also but with have, the highest quality. Exactly, but you also have a profit motivation. You're trying to you know generate a return for your shareholders. So you you see the kind of conflict in that all the time, where you know PBMs they do a lot to bring down healthcare costs, but also since they benefit when you know they negotiate a higher rebate on a, an expensive drug, they have sort of this perverse effect where they push the list price of medicines up. And, um, you know, while most people don't pay the list price, it does severely impact the subset of the population and and does create a lot of problems. So potentially by, you know, taking that little profit margin out, um, they'll potentially be able to, to deliver at a lower cost over time. Okay, but doesn't that mean that someone else is going to have to pick up the tab for that lack of profit? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're they're going to be whenever you introduce new players or or take out one perverse effect, you're going to introduce another one. You know, in this case, one that immediately comes to mind is the fact that you know the reason that self-insured employers kind of work the way they do um, with the health insurer administrating the plan, even if they're you know the ones actually funding the insurance. Um, it's so when someone gets a claim denied, they look to the insurer. They don't look at their employer. But um, if you can think about, you know, the reaction, um, even if it's just their own employees, when they know that it's their employer denying a service, uh, denying a drug, because at the end of the day, you know, really the only way in a lot of ways, unless you make a lot of systemic changes to control healthcare costs in, in the near or long term, is to limit choice. If people get whatever care they want, whenever they want, uh, you get very expensive care. And the fact that there's a lot of choice in the U.S. healthcare system and a lot of variation in terms of how it gets paid for and by whom. It's what makes it so expensive. So, Does anybody bring up the term socialized medicine anymore? I mean, uh, now and then, I think I, I saw a couple people referring to Warren Buffett in the past as said single-payer insurance is perhaps the the best model in the long run. Um, this is definitely not that. If anything, it kind of reinforces the the kind of current dichotomy between... Right. Well, that's why I yeah. asked that, because on the one hand, you would think that, all right, if you're saying that what you want is high-quality health care at a, what they would consider to be a fair or reasonable price, everybody that participates in the delivery of that health care needs to be paid. And no matter how transparent or how much technology you throw at the situation... Uh, I have a hard time understanding exactly what kind of competition is going to drive these prices down other than a heavy-handed corporate entity that says, look, we have over a million insured people. You better give us the best price. I mean, that, that's really the question. Um, at the end of the day, it comes down to negotiating power a lot of the time, which is why you've seen so much consolidation basically everywhere in the healthcare sector. You know, 1.2 million is a lot of people. And I think you can add some weight behind the fact that, you know, there also be some families that'll be insured and just the pure financial might of these companies. But United Health, just its employer arm, you know, we're not even going to get into Medicare and Medicaid, that's insurance or administers the insurance of somewhere around 30 million people. So you're, you're not you're not competitive on the negotiating side with, with them. Uh, the question is whether if you kind of take out their profit margin, maybe you don't have to quite get as good of a price to still have an outcome that's potentially superior. But that's a that's a pretty slim margin, and that's a big difference in negotiating power. So um, it, it's going to be a challenge to for them to get prices down in a significant way if, again, they are going the route of actually managing healthcare plans as opposed to you know, tinkering around the edges with technology, which might really be the case. We don't actually know, given, you know, on one hand, you have this very grandiose statement, but very little on what actually they're going to do. All right, let's say that Warren Buffett calls Max Neeson later today and says, Max, I'd be curious, what would you recommend to begin? What should we do when we deliver health care to our employees? What would be one of the things that you would recommend? I think the first thing you have to look at is the places where the most health the most healthcare spending is done. Um, you know, people like to point at drugs a lot of the time, but at the end of the day, even though they are very expensive, it's less than 20% of healthcare expenditure. So the place to start, I think, is definitely on the point on, on care and um, just starting to look at 
what are people spending the most care on and how do we direct people to lower cost entities? And that that's not easy, again, because people hate being pushed into healthcare decisions. But figuring out how to get people, you know, invest more in preventative care in attempting to avoid these really like acute event interventions and hospitalizations um, by getting ahead of time. And and this might actually be easier for them because this is going to be generally relative to the entire you know, spectrum of the U.S. population, pretty healthy people. These are people that are in generally like pretty good jobs working for excellent corporations um, on the younger side. You know, you don't have Medicare and Medicaid in here. So um, just trying to figure out the subset of those less healthy people, you know, people with chronic conditions, target those first. But that, you know, it's this, that's not a unique uh, prescription. But, no, but you uh, never but know. Maybe your voice, add your voice to it. Maybe Warren Buffett will call if he does. I know you're going to let us know. Thanks very much. Max Neeson is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist for all things healthcare. We want to visit now with Robert Lawrence. He is the Albert Williams Professor of International Trade and Investment at Harvard's Kennedy School. Professor Lawrence, thanks very much for being with us. You're welcome. Can you start off just going into a little bit of a history for us about uh, frozen chicken and the Subaru Brat? And I think you know why I'm combining both of those. I'm actually not sure why. Well, okay. This goes back to something you were talking about having to do with trade. And back in 1962, the European Common Market barred access to U.S. frozen chicken imports. At the same okay, time, I got right? You. Okay, go for it. Yeah, I didn't realize they were frozen, to be honest. Ah, okay. They're, they're frozen. You know, Europe formed a common market. And when they did, they raised tariffs on American chicken. And as a result of that, the United States was entitled to retaliate and uh, raise some tariffs on the Europeans. And we looked around and we thought, well, where could we find a, a European product that would be vulnerable? And uh, we actually raised tariffs on the Combi, the Volkswagen buses that were being sold in the U.S. Uh, but in fact, when we raised those tariffs, we did it. Uh, for all countries, we were entitled to, and on all trucks. So, in effect, the United States is protected. Uh, the United States economy has a 25% tariff on all trucks that are imported into the U.S. That compares with the 2.5% tariff that we have on finished automobiles. So, the result is, even to this day, uh, as a result of that chicken war, uh, the U.S. has very high tariffs and high protection on trucks, and they're a very sensitive issue, as you could imagine, in any of our trade negotiations. Indeed, and the reason I brought up the the Subaru Brat is because in order to sort of rebrand it as an open-air passenger car, they put two rear-facing seats in the bed of the actual pickup. Right, because you want to be classified as a car rather than a truck <laughs> okay. if you're an import. All right. Now, we can, can we tie this to the ongoing renegotiation of NAFTA having to do with automobiles, trucks, and the amount of content that comes from the United States in these vehicles? Yes, absolutely. You see, um, 
the intention of the administration is to try to get more production in the United States. And uh, actually, uh, one way they're going to try to do that is to insist that uh, uh, products have more uh, North American and more U.S. content in them in order to qualify for the tariff reduction that you get through the North America Free Trade Agreement. Now, when it comes to automobiles, uh, since the tariff is only 2.5%, the administration doesn't really have much leverage over the foreign countries, over Mexico or Canada, because at worst, uh, those uh, uh, produ- producers will simply pay this 2.5% tariff if they can't meet the local content productions. But when it comes to trucks, since the tariff rate is 25%, well, there is a huge incentive to uh, qualify for the NAFTA reduction, and that's where I think the the administration has some uh, more negotiating leverage. So if you were advising the administration, and you have worked in previous administrations, what would you be telling Robert Lighthizer or offering as advice? Well, you see, I don't think um, uh, that this is a great idea uh, in the first place, uh, because um, putting a 25 percent, we have very uh, integrated supply chains between ourselves and Mexico. And if, in fact, we do uh, dis- uh, disrupt those supply chains, a lot of the products that are produced, trucks and cars in the U.S., have Mexican content. Uh, if there is now a, uh, a much more restrictive policy, it's going to raise the cost of production and I think could damage uh, employment in the auto industry and truck industry in the U.S. as well as in Mexico. So I, I think we, uh, I think the, NAFTA, the NAFTA had adjustment costs, but we've gone through those. And now I think to, to reopen this whole question of, of the content of automobiles uh, is going to be so disruptive for the supply chains uh, that, in fact, it's not going to help the people uh, that the administration claims it's trying to help. Well, is there a way for them to walk back from this position without seeming to, let's say, give in to Canadians and the Mexicans? Well, uh, you know, they, um, I, I, I do think um, there are a lot of issues. Uh, NAFTA is a very uh, complex agreement, and, and everybody, uh, both the Canadians and the Mexicans, agree that, say, things like uh, digital trade, uh, Internet trade, um, uh, other kinds of issues uh, can, should be introduced into a modern trade agreement. There's also a general uh, consensus that uh, the labor and environmental provisions in in the trade agreements, uh, which were only side agreements in the NAFTA, could be included. So it's quite possible to come up with a big package and to say you've renegotiated the NAFTA. So in my view, that would be one way you could, in a sense, walk it back. Uh, Professor Lawrence, uh, you've written uh, quite extensively about international trade and globalization. Uh, What do you say to critics of globalization? Has it gone too far? And uh, is there a way to, uh, in a sense, fix it without tearing it down? Well, I I think uh, globalization on balance has been beneficial, uh, but it has caused disruption, and there are uh, people and firms and uh, others who have lost. So I, I think we need uh, both to sustain it, 
because I think we get benefits from it, and many others around the world have been lifted from poverty as a result. Uh, but we also need to improve the policies that we have to help those who are who've been dislocated and who who, who, who have lost their jobs. I, I don't think in the U.S. we've done a very good uh, job in uh, in helping displaced workers uh, and in uh, retraining them. And I think that's what needs to be emphasized rather than erecting new trade barriers. Give you about 10 seconds. Is there anything specific you would like to hear from President Trump in tonight's State of the Union message? Well, uh, I think he started a, a, along the right track when, uh, at Davos, uh, and I'd like to see him continue to, uh, to, to recognize the value of a trading system based on rules that are negotiated with all of our trading partners. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Professor Robert Lawrence, Professor of International Trade and Investment at the JFK School of Government at Harvard University in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. And we welcome all of our listeners. His mission is to help you see better using American-made products. Scott Shapiro is the chief executive and the co-founder of State Optical. They are based in Vernon Hills, Illinois. That's just outside Chicago. But Scott joins us in our 1130 studios here in New York. Scott, thanks for being here. Tell us about State Optical. Why did you create this luxury eyewear manufacturing business and what makes it distinctive? So thanks for having me. Um, you know, my family's been in eyewear for 40 years now, um, just like everybody else importing frames from overseas. As a matter of fact, their, their company's called Europa Eyewear because when they started the company in 1977, all frames were imported from Europe. That's what they did. Um, you know, we started this project about five years ago because we felt like we needed a differentiator in the marketplace. Uh, of course, there's a lot of pride to making things in the United States. We're really proud that we have 50 craftsmen in our factory today that are producing eyewear, wouldn't, be, wouldn't have those jobs if we were outsourcing that overseas. But really, you know, from a storytelling perspective, we felt like consumers had uh, a real distrust with eyewear, a lot of cynicism about their eyewear, partially because of so much licensing, partially because there's huge conglomerate corporations that uh, that take up a lot of space in the eyewear industry. And so we wanted to connect people with the way, the craft of eyewear, the, the way that their frames are actually made. Well, just to give you the perspective, right, and I'm sure you know about this, but Essilor, which is a mm -hmm. French-based company, announced the, well, the combination, the takeover of Luxottica, uh, and that was a 15.6 billion euro deal. That was uh, back in January of last year. Uh, the acquisition is still pending. Looks like it might go through, but they're the 800-pound gorilla in the industry, aren't they? Oh, yeah. So, uh, and, and I'll tell you, it's funny because uh, I run into people all the time who know I work in the eyewear industry, and their first question is always, hey, do you work for that company that owns everything in the eyewear industry? Uh, of course, that's, a, uh, that's an exaggeration. They don't own everything in the, in the eyewear industry. There's lots of small companies like ours who are making our own way. But that's really what our brand is all about. By making it here in the United States, we can kind of cut through all the BS 
and really show people what they're paying for, what the what our brand is about, and, and how we make it. Okay, so if uh, if I sign up, and you can sign up for a factory tour, mm-hmm. uh, if I were to show up at your factory, what would I see just outside of Chicago? Yeah, great question. So, And we do encourage you, Pim, or any of your listeners to come and, and, and see that, uh, that process. Uh, first of all, most people don't realize, in, in our factory, it takes about 70 steps to make one pair of acetate frames. So it's a very in-depth process. And most importantly, of those 70 steps, about 50% of those have to be done by hand. So that's why it's so rare for eyewear to be made in the United States, because hand labor is very expensive here in the U.S., and we don't have the skilled labor labor force to easily hire and get to work uh, doing that job. Uh, each frame takes about two weeks to completely um, be finished. So th- there's a lot that goes into making high-quality eyewear, and I think most consumers are under the impression today that a pair of glasses, a pair of glasses, that maybe there's some machine in China that spits these things out 200 at a time. Uh, but when they come in and to our facility, they see the, the handwork that goes into it. They see uh, the detail that goes into the frames. And it's a totally different experience. And it's not only just manufacturing in the United States. You do have to source some products, over, some pieces overseas, but it's all put together here. Correct. So unfortunately, you know, one of the things that people don't talk about when they talk about bringing manufacturing jobs back to the United States is how difficult it is because there's no infrastructure to make things here in the United States. We don't have a skilled labor force. We don't have the machinery here in the United States and we don't have the raw materials. So um, the metal part of the hinge and the acetate itself, the raw plastic, we have to import. Um, But everything else, all of those 70 plus steps are all done in our in our factory. Okay, so if this is a assembly as well as a design uh, business, it is. What kind of price points are we talking about? So our frames uh, retail for somewhere between uh, three hundred fifty to four hundred fifty dollars, um, which is not inexpensive. Certainly, uh, it's but it's sort of like at the entry level of the luxury eyewear world. It's it's not completely out of the question when you talk about what you see when you walk into an independent office. What uh, what level of uh, sophistication do you need to really get good lenses? Because it's one thing to talk about the frames, but you actually look through the sure. lenses. Yeah. Well, so to be perfectly honest with you, uh, unlike Essilor and Luxottica, uh, our company is devoted just to making the frames. So when you went, if you go into an independent uh, optometrist, for instance, you see our product, you can buy our product uh, from that optometrist, and then he takes care of uh, sourcing the lenses from a different company. Yeah, but you want to make sure that it's the same quality as the lens as the frames that you're buying good point that's why we sell our frames almost exclusively through those independent optometrists so we're in about 1100 uh independent offices across the country and and we work only with optometrists that and opticians that use the best lenses what's the biggest challenge for state optical right now Wow. So uh, like any startup, uh, getting our story out there is what we focus on, number one. Now, you know, we have to be able to make a quality product and we have to be able to justify the price point. So uh, we can't just say to the average consumer, hey, uh, you're going to pay an extra hundred dollars or so just because the frames are made in the United States. No, we have to make a product that's as good, if not better than what's made in Italy or France, that's uh, priced at the same price. So that's always a continuing challenge. I think we've mostly met that. Now our challenge is to get our story out there, to get people who care to hear the story. Well, thanks very much. They can hear it 
of course, on a podcast, PNL podcast for Bloomberg, but they can also check it out at the factory of State Optical just outside of Chicago. Thanks very much. Scott Shapiro, he's the chief executive and the co-founder of State Optical. We consult our own expert, Ira Jersey. He is chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Ira, I got to pose a question. I don't know whether you have the answer, but is the United States really a worse bet in terms of its sovereign debt compared to countries like France and Italy and Spain? (laughs) How does this make any sense? Yeah, you, you're talking about the yield differential yes. between them, right? Yeah, two point seven percent for the U.S. ten-year, and in France, zero point five two percent in Italy and one point four in Spain. Well, one of the big things that I think we always have to realize, you know, we always look at these big yield differentials, is that you have to look at what is the funding cost in that currency. So the funding cost in the U.S. is, say, the Fed funds rate or something similar to that. And you're talking about 1.41% for that in the U.S., whereas in Europe, that's a negative number and, you know, negative, um, negative uh, 50 basis points or so. So when you, look at, when you look at that difference, that difference is 2, 2% right there. So if you look at France versus the U.S., you can say, okay, maybe the U.S. is, you know, 20 basis points cheap and um, to... to uh, to France based on based on that, but you know that's there's some noise in that too, um, and and not, not only that, but you know we always say, hey, let's. Um Let's look at these yield differentials. And if you're a European investor, you've got to love the U.S. because because we're 200 basis points higher. But then you're taking massive foreign exchange risk. And as you can see, just what's gone on with the dollar recently, um, you know, the dollar can move several percent in just a month. Are you willing to take that amount of volatility? And if you hedge all of that out, the yields are almost exactly the same if you if you uh, do all of the asset swapping that you need to do to um, um, to make those equal. All right. So, well, so will that, uh, was that likely to... To remain is that is that uh, is that sort of coordination or that the comparison is that likely to remain true as interest rates rise in the United States? Have we got a sell off at the long end right now? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I do. I do think that that will that that will persist at least for for um, at least for the next couple of couple of quarters. Um, you know whether or not that persists into next year. You know that there's a lot of flow related data that that matters, and and you know what happens with trade and does the Federal Reserve um, keep up? Does the ECB end up um, Reducing its asset purchases again, which might have some flow effects uh, for in in Europe or maybe back into Europe if if they start to uh, yields start to go up a lot there. So th- there's a lot that goes into that, and you know I'm, I'm not sure I'm prepared to to, to make a call on uh, on what's going on in Europe uh, just because there is a lot of uncertainty about what the ECB's plan ultimately will be over the next 18 months with their own quantitative easing purchases. Okay, so let's focus then on the. Uh United States and the availability of bonds for <laughs> private is, pension funds. You got all you sure. can eat, right? Yeah, well, well, that's that's true insofar as there's a lot of corporate debt that's been issued, although not all of that has been in the long end. One of the things that, that I think is interesting, there's this idea that because um, the equity markets outperform the fixed income markets so much over the last year uh, or two, that you're going to have a lot of people reallocating by selling equities and then buying fixed income assets. And it's not in the, in the private pension land, that's not obvious to me, primarily because 
you have a lot of investors who care about what their uh, expected return is based on their asset allocation. And you don't, you haven't had the funded status, so the amount of money that, um, uh, the, the the amount of assets that these companies have based on the, compared to their liabilities that hasn't gone up so much even with the equity market going up and the reason for that is the continued low interest rate environment particularly for corporate bonds and the way that they have to uh, discount their liabilities so what that means is until you wind up getting a significant increase in the funded status of these pension plans they won't be doing any of that reallocation and are likely to stay heavily invested in equity markets okay but is that the right thing for them to do <laughs> well, on a risk on a risk adjusted basis, would you rather be in U.S. fixed income where um, you know you might have returns of near zero, say for the whole market over the next uh, year or two as the Fed? hikes and you have modestly higher interest rates, or would you rather be in the equity market where maybe valuations might seem stretched to some, but where a growing economy should should also help uh, uh, it should also help the underlying revenue sources of, of those companies. So, what's the move to support job preservation? I don't yeah. mean jobs. I don't mean jobs in the economy. I mean jobs are the people who have to manage all the money and meet these pension obligations. Sure. Well, that well, that's your your risk limits, right? But if if you're, um, you know, managing risk is obviously going to be the the hard thing to do. I think for a lot of these managers, because it's not obvious what the safe haven is, and you can't just put you know a large chunk of your assets in cash, um, making you know one and a half percent. You need to be in in something that's going to have the potential to do somewhat better than that. And I think that's one of the reasons why. Over the last several years, you've seen moves uh, by some managers into hedge funds and even private equity, somewhere where it's not necessarily as correlated, the returns aren't necessarily as correlated to equities or fixed income markets. Ira, I'm just going to give you about 10 seconds here. Uh, Janet Yellen presiding over her final meeting as Federal Reserve Chief. You expect anything tomorrow? I do expect them to be a little bit more hawkish than they were at the December meeting, um, but no, no hike. March is probably uh, when we're going to get the hike. Thank you very much. Ira Jersey is our chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.